0: Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today.
1: Hello and welcome to our J.P. Morgan Depository Receipt Education Series podcast. I'm King Ho. I'm the co-head for product for Depository Receipt Asia Pacific and MENA Markets at J.P. Morgan. This podcast is designed to be informational and for educational purpose only and may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan. We have invited external specialists to share insights on what investors are looking for from corporates and for CFOs and investor relations teams to be kept abreast of the trends and concerns from their key stakeholders, i.e. their current and potential shareholders. We commissioned the S&P Global Market Intelligence to conduct the research. And joining us today, we have Brandon Lehman and Priyana Devicha from S&P Global Market Intelligence, who will share with us about the value of sustainability and related corporate governance practices, and how this connects to climate risk. Brandon and Priyana will take us through the main findings of S&P's research and suggest some practical implications for companies thinking about these risks. So without further ado, let's introduce Braden and Priyano. Can you introduce yourself, what you do, and your role in the project?
2: Hello everybody, my name is Braden Lehman. I'm a Senior Associate for Corporate Governance and M&A at S&P Global. One of the primary areas of focus that I have is to help companies understand and implement governance best practices and to navigate shareholder expectations in their respective markets. So these could be issues including board composition, risk management, but could also include issues like capital issuances, executive compensation, and more. So I was a writer on this project and was tasked with looking into how governance fits into the question of climate risk management. And I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit on how they are linked.
1: Thanks, Braden. Your job sounds interesting and an area of important focus for many companies in their communication and stakeholders. How about you, Prerna? How did you get involved in this piece of research?
3: Hi, King. My name is Prerna Devecha. I manage the climate and ESG credit and risk solutions business for S and P Global Market Intelligence globally. This is a relatively new business line uh, within our division. Traditionally, our division has always focused a lot more on credit risk analytics, on data, and on solutions, uh, all that are linked to credit. Now, with this new addition, we also have analytics that can help clients to manage credit risk implications that are associated with climate risk. And this is for all their exposures. So this is the new sort of business line that we have, and I'm managing this, and and that's how I got involved in this piece of research.
1: Thank you, Priyana. What did you investigate or identify over the past few months, and why is this important?
2: So over the past few months, we looked into whether there is a measurable value, which in this case refers to financial value that can be associated with sustainability, so managing the E or environment related risk and climate in particular, as well as corporate governance. So we wanted to understand whether managing sustainability and corporate governance could have any direct business impact beyond just being a good corporate citizen. I'm sure this
1: topic does get asked by the company's shareholders.
3: To just add further on to what Brayden just mentioned, we investigated whether companies with higher greenhouse gas emissions had announced targets related to lowering their emissions or investing in, uh, say, greener assets or green technology to reduce their overall net emissions impact on the environment. And I guess the area of focus, really, that we looked into was how would this then impact their existing operations, their funding capacity, and their resulted creditworthiness.
1: This all sounds very interesting, and I'm looking forward to getting into the details with you shortly. But before we do that, can you help our listeners to understand some of the official terminology? And we see this in some of the increasing regulation around climate, as well as reporting standards. What is physical risk and what is transition risk?
3: Yeah, so perhaps I can answer that question. So physical risk and transition risk, um, yes, this is an important distinction, highly relevant, I would say, from a company and management perspective. Generally speaking, when you think about climate risk, you tend to divide it into either physical risk or transition risk. And so, just to simplify matters, physical risk is related to the physical impacts of climate change, and can be both acute, such as what happens when there are floods or wildfire, or it can be chronic, such as what we see from having to deal with you know more permanent damages, such as rising sea levels. Either it can result in damage to assets. For example, loss of assets from wildfires, shorter asset lives due to increased storms or flooding frequency or heat or operational issues, such as examples for airlines having to reduce payloads. In this case, um, you know, for example, leaving luggage behind for their planes to take off from locations that are experiencing extreme heat. So really, all of this is, uh, you know, good examples of physical risk. Now coming to transition risk. These risks relate to the effect of the general transition to a lower carbon economy and to technologies in the form of, say, increased carbon taxation, stranded assets, changes needed to a company's business strategy and what that would entail, and et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, and I would say, aside from the direct financial impacts felt by these companies from these climate-related risks, there are also some potential broader financial and business implications associated with the governance of a company as well, so specifically in relation to sustainability and climate. In fact, there's a pretty large number of academic studies which indicate that companies with positive governance and sustainability practices in general perform better over the long term. And that does make sense from a theoretical perspective, too. So to think about sustainability and governance in a broad sense, a very straightforward example that I think is easy to grasp is ensuring that executive compensation is paid out over a longer time horizon and linked to performance, which I think is relatively intuitive that it reduces the risk of short-termism and benefits companies' longer-term performance so they can remain stable over time and perform better.
1: So what kind of data did you
2: rely on and what methodology did you use? Yeah. So the study was built as follows. We first put together four different portfolios of companies. Two of those portfolios were higher carbon-emitting portfolios, and two of them were lower carbon-emitting portfolios. So in this case, we were using higher emissions as a proxy for the management of the E, so the environmental, in ESG. Two of these portfolios were situated in APAC, and two were with companies situated in Latin America and the Caribbean. The companies we selected were all large-cap, well-established companies and there were 15 companies in each portfolio. And for each of these portfolios, we ran a model to establish or to predict credit outcomes until twenty fifty. And for this, we used an S&P model called Climate Credit Analytics. And this model is able to ingest both climate-related input metrics as well as company financials. But I will let Prerna elaborate that on just a second. What's important to know for the moment is that this model primarily checks exposure to environmental risks and outputs how creditworthy it anticipates a company to be into the future. So we then checked the correlation of these results with an assessment of a company's governance practices to see if a company with good traditional governance practices like the previously mentioned highly independent board compositions, or executive compensation practices. So we check to see if companies that score well on those also perform better on other aspects of our assessment. And we use the governance dimension of the S&P Global ESG score for this evaluation. So finally, we wanted to bridge the gap between climate risk and corporate governance. This is why we did a sense check to see whether the market has come to the same conclusion as our hypothesis, namely, Corporate governance creates value for companies. To test this, we looked at the stewardship reports of the three largest passive investors who are some of the biggest asset managers by total assets under management. And their stewardship reports that they publish every year show in a pretty comparable way what these investors value when they're addressing companies. So that was a large overview, but I'll pass it off to Pramina to get a little more into the specifics about climate credit analytics and what exactly that means.
3: Thanks, Braden. Yes, I, I think it would be good to dive a bit more deeper into the analytical tool that was used for the study, which, you know, as Braden mentioned, is climate credit analytics. I'm going to call it CCA as we sort of move along in the conversation. So what CCA really is, is a model which analyzes the financial impact of climate risk. It projects, you know, out to 2050 a company's probability to default due to climate risk. The output is a credit score. And at this point, you know, I would just like to mention that the credit score, that is the output from climate credit analytics, is independent and distinct to S&P global ratings and the credit rating business that it has. What we're doing with climate credit analytics is a statistical credit scoring model suite. Now, for the analysis via climate credit analytics, we consider companies' company's baseline financials and financial metrics, but also various sector-specific input factors that would play a role in how a company's behavior would be different across each of their sectors, how these are affected by climate change, and so on. It would utilize climate scenarios Demand, supply, elasticities of different industries, transition trajectories that companies have specifically pledged to, and other market dynamics in general that are drivers of financial performance, uh, such as production volumes, cost, asset value, and capital expenditure. All of this is tailored to each industry's behavior over the next 30 odd years. And then these drivers are further used to forecast and adjust financial statements up to 2050. Thus, we quantify the credit risk impact on companies due to climate risk, finally by using the statistical credit scoring models, which we call credit analytics.
1: Yeah, and what are the main findings of that case study? Did any results surprise you?
3: I wouldn't say they really surprised me. We ran the CCA model on those four portfolios we mentioned This part also constituted the heart of the case study. And based on the analysis, we saw that the higher emitting portfolios, namely those companies which are in the mining space, oil and gas space, automotive space, these tend to experience credit deterioration. So an example we can use is, say, we know that coal mining is generally a high carbon emitting business activity. And so a company in this sector is more likely to have taxes imposed on its carbon emissions that would then increase its costs. And then furthermore, it would um, also lead to this company eventually having to close down mines that become unviable to operate due to increasing costs. And this is a term that we commonly call asset stranding.
2: Yeah. And the correlation was strongest for the metals and mining portfolio, which is, of course, a sector with generally higher emissions, and we saw there a downward credit migration uh, that was the highest out of all of the analyzed portfolios. So there we noticed the average credit score of these portfolios dropped pretty significantly from initial values of around BB plus and BBB minus to around BB. Another interesting finding that we had was that overall, companies that had transition strategies meaning they took the time to explain to investors exactly how they will transition to lower carbon emissions in their business model, these people generally have more stable credit scores over time. And for me, that's a particularly interesting takeaway. So for me, this is a pretty interesting takeaway from the study, right? I think that having a transition strategy is a very important ask coming from stakeholders, especially investors. And what is the link to governance? So we linked the study to governance through two main avenues, the first of which is an intuitive link. So governance practices are intrinsically linked to the management of risk, meaning that the management and reduction of climate risk is inherently an element of good governance. But we also wanted to check our work and make sure that we were tracking all aspects of governance. So we wanted to know if traditional governance practices like I mentioned earlier board composition play a role here too. So here we relied on S&P Global's ESG scores and we use the governance dimension of the score which assesses companies based on a large variety of factors such as board composition, media controversies, executive compensation, product and process innovation and much much more. It's really it's a huge suite of factors that we're tracking in order to output a score. For companies' overall governance practices. And what we found here was pretty interesting. We found a high correlation between the governance score and the results of our bond. And that means that companies with generally considered good governance practices tended also to score better on our model's assessment of creditworthiness into the future. Of course, correlation is not causation. So we also explored some of the theoretical reasons why this correlation might be causal in the research. Okay, so why do you look at G so generally? Well, governance is generally challenging to measure, especially in a way that enables comparison, because by definition, it covers a lot of very different aspects of companies. So, for example, does a company with shares that have super voting rights, but an independent board, have better governance than a company with only one class of shares, but a majority non-independent board. Also, governance indicators vary on an industry-to-industry basis. For example, cybersecurity is naturally going to be far more important in an industry where you're processing a lot of customer data as opposed to if you are, for example, a materials producer that sells most of their products to large corporate clients. So, For this reason, we needed a general model that encompassed a wide variety of factors and applied them consistently and weighted them differently on an industry-to-industry basis. So the government score that we chose is able to accommodate those differences and gives an output from 1 to 100, which again makes these results available in a numerical form, which makes it much easier to compare with other companies.
1: Right. So what should a company do to leverage these fundings?
3: Yeah, maybe I can go first on this. I'd say the first thing for companies to consider is to assess their exposure to climate risk and set objectives like emission targets. This, of course, requires reviewing your long-term strategy and setting up monitoring frameworks so that you can track and report on progress. A materiality assessment is also a good starting point to assess exposure, and understand how significant each risk is to a certain business. And this can vary from industry to industry. And I would say finally, from a climate risk perspective, coming up with a transition strategy helps prepare not only yourself but also investors for the coming economic shift spurred by climate change. Yeah, of
2: course. And given that this risk management is an aspect of good governance, and I would agree with everything that Prairna has said. However, I would also highlight that doing this well could necessitate a pretty substantial overhaul that requires a lot of institutional buy-in. And as far as governance is concerned, there are often some pieces of low-hanging fruit that companies can implement to align their governance with international best practices as well. So for example, investors and proxy advisors often have red flags that might result in them not supporting a given item at an annual general meeting, or that might trigger them to engage with companies. And that might be for a variety of reasons. Perhaps their investment philosophy is conservative on capital issuances, and they will vote down any capital issuance without preemptive rights of over 10% of their share capital. Or perhaps they're conservative on executive compensation and we'll vote against a remuneration report that doesn't feature a long-term incentive with at least a three-year vesting period. So some of these can be addressed easily by a company and regulations and investor expectations are always changing. So it's important to stay alert and be aware of these changes so that you can make these changes and avoid a lot of investor dissent that doesn't really need to happen given the fundamentals of the business. So most countries have an organizational body be it governmental or non-governmental, that publishes best practices and expectations for corporate governance. Another important thing to do is that many institutional investors base their voting methodology off of international governance expectations, which can often come as a surprise to companies that think they already fulfill those local best practices. So in many cases, they might have carve-outs for local markets and their policies, but that's not always the case. So for this reason, I would say, do be aware of regulatory updates on the international level and specifically look to, for example, what proxy advisors such as ISS and Glass Lewis have changed in their guidelines. And typically, they'll publish their policy updates once a year. And I would just say, have a look at those policy updates, particularly for the market that you're in, see any red flags that they've drawn and see if that's something that you can implement potentially without too much institutional cost. Thank you, Prana and Brayden, for your time
1: today. It has been insightful to know a bit more about the research you have done on these topics.
3: Thanks, King, for having us on the podcast
2: today. Yeah, same here, King. It was a great discussion that we just had. Thank you. So once again, on behalf of
1: JP Morgan Depository Receipt Group, thanks everyone for tuning in. Have a nice day.
0: Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. J.P. Morgan is a marketing name for the security services businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, North America, and its affiliates worldwide. JPMorgan Chase Bank North America, organized under the laws of the USA with limited liability, is regulated by the Officer of the Comptroller of the Currency in the USA, as well as the regulations of the countries in which it or its affiliates undertake regulated activities. For additional regulatory disclosures regarding JPMorgan entities, please consult www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures. This podcast has been created and prepared for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, and or legal advice. The content of this podcast may not be reproduced or used for any other purpose without the prior written consent of J.P. Morgan. The views expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily constitute J.P. Morgan's endorsement of the same. The statements in this podcast are not intended to be legally binding. In preparing this podcast, J.P. Morgan has relied upon and assumed without independent verification the accuracy and completeness of all information available from public sources. Neither J.P. Morgan nor any of its directors, officers, employees, or agents shall incur any responsibility or liability whatsoever to any other party in respect of the contents of this podcast or any matters referred to in or discussed as a result of this podcast. J.P. Morgan makes no representations as to the legal, regulatory, tax, or accounting implications of the matters referred to in this podcast. The products and services described in this podcast, if any, are offered by JPMorgan Chase Bank North America or its affiliates subject to applicable laws and regulations and service terms. Not all products and services are available in all locations. Eligibility for particular products and services will be determined by JPMorgan Chase Bank North America and or its affiliates. Copyright 2023 JPMorgan Chase & Co. All rights reserved.